Hi, you're listening to the podcast of First Presbyterian Church in Ogden, Utah. My name is John Draskovic. I'm the pastor here. And what you'll hear is the message, the sermon from the week's worship before. And uh, you can always check out the full service that has the music and our prayers and liturgy on our YouTube channel. If you go to YouTube, you can just search First Presbyterian Church Ogden and you can find us there. We've got all our services recorded, including the, the most recent um, live stream of our, of our service. I hope you enjoy this podcast and you find it to be a blessing. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to our podcast here, which is from the Sunday Sermon on August 6th. We're covering the first half of John chapter 8, so this is the first 30 verses, and uh, mainly we're focusing on two kind of events that are connected. Um, Sometimes it's a little hard to see the connection, but the first is that really famous story of the woman caught in adultery, and uh, Jesus is he's teaching in the temple and the religious leaders bring this woman to him and uh, they say, Hey, she's been caught in adultery. The law says this, what do you say? And his famous reply, he who is without sin should cast the first stone. And we will see how that story connects into what follows, which is uh, Jesus talking about himself as I am the light of the world. And he talks about how he didn't come to judge the world, but even if he did, his judgment would be true. And so that story of the woman caught in adultery and Jesus talking about being the light of the world, the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it and reveals what is already there is this connection between how he judges and doesn't judge at the same time. It's, it's more of we who are judging ourselves by what we do and based on our Um, orientation towards the world and towards God, and sometimes even towards our faith and our religion. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this week. I I hope it is one, uh, a week that kind of builds you up and helps you see a little further into this great mystery of faith and what it is to be a follower of Jesus, the Messiah. And I'll invite you now into a time of prayer as we invoke the presence of of the Lord. Father, we ask that you be here present with us. That your spirit be moving between, around, and within our hearts together as your people. Lord, continue to draw us closer to you so that we may be agents of your kingdom here and now, wherever you have placed us in our spheres. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable before you, for you, Lord, are our rock. You are our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're um, in the first half of John chapter 8 this week, and if you've noticed, John has a way of repeating himself throughout the Gospels. And so you heard one of the things that Deanna read about you, you know, where are you from, Jesus? And he says, you know, I, come on, guys. We just talked about this last week. That's pretty much what he's saying. He's like, I come from my father, and I'm going to be returning to my father. And this is John's kind of one of his ways of teaching. Is like he keeps circling around the same couple of subjects. And we're going to hear that again today, that he continues to circle around some of the same questions 
and approach it from different angles. And when it comes right down to the big question that John's gospel is trying to ask is, who is Jesus? Who are you? And that's the question that's put in a whole bunch of different people's mouths all throughout the gospel. Who are you anyway? And Jesus, interestingly, responds in the beginning of this week's text. He says, I am exactly who I'm telling you I am. It's like, listen to my words, and then you'll know who I am. Because Jesus is who he says he is, right? He is what what we consider a fully integrated person. His words and his actions totally align. His teaching is his person. His words are his identity. And for me, you know, this is one of my goals, like as a a human being on planet Earth, as a a father, as a pastor, right, as just a a man in the world, is I want to be as fully integrated as I can. I want my inner life to be reflected in my outer life. I want my words to be fully congruent with my actions. I want to be consistent with what I say and what I do. However, if I may quote the Apostle Paul, that which I do is not what I want to do, and that which I don't want to do is what I do. Because I'm a human being, and I'm broken, and I'm not fully integrated, and I am not fully consistent. You know what? As a matter of fact, we as human beings are walking contradictions. We don't even understand ourselves most of the time. Right? And you're like, have you ever had one of those experiences where you walk away and you're like, why did I say that? Or what did I just do? Why did I do that? Right? We are a mystery to ourselves. And then you throw two people together. Oh, there we go. (laughs) There's a little bit more mystery for the world. But Jesus, he's not like that. He is a fully consistent and integrated person. When you see what he does, it lines up with what he says. And so that answer to the question of who are you is, haven't you been listening? I've been telling you. But it is so unusual. I mean, beyond rare to find somebody whose words and actions, whose life is consistently uh, integrated. Now, when Jesus says this, like, listen to my words, I'm telling you exactly who I am. We have some clues. We have some keys uh, about what Jesus is saying about himself. And there are three of them in this first half, the first 30, cha- uh, 30 verses of John chapter 8. So if you wanted to this afternoon, you know, have a little reading assignment, read the first 30 verses of John chapter 8, because we couldn't read them all in worship here this morning. There are these three great I am statements. And John is famous for his I am statements. This is part of Jesus' words indicating who he is as a person. And so the three that we cover in our, uh, in our piece of scripture today come from verse 12, what we heard Deanna read, I am the light of the world. And we go a little further in verse 24, unless you come to believe that I am, you will die in your sin. And finally, in verse 28, when you have hoisted the son of man up, you will know that I am am. And we'll hear another one next week in verse 58, before Abraham was, I am. And so why are these important? Okay, what's the big deal about these I am statements? Well, first of all, if you go all the way back to Exodus, 
And you have that scene where Moses is at the burning bush. Remember, Moses, he, he's, he's run out of town because he was scared of his life for Pharaoh. And now he's with his father-in-law, and he's watching his sheep, and he comes across this bush that is burning, but it's not consumed. And he's like, I got to check this out. And so he gets a little closer, and then the bush starts speaking to him, which, you know, I don't know what he was eating. Maybe he found some mushrooms. I don't know. But um, Moses hears this voice out of the bush, take your shoes off, for you're on holy ground. And then the voice tells him, you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell Pharaoh that I've heard the cry of my people in slavery and in bondage, and you're going to let them go. And Moses is like, I'm going to do what to who? And the Lord says, go ahead. And he goes, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I got to tell him who sent me. Like, what's your name? Who are you? And the Lord's response out of the burning bush is, I am who I am. And then just a verse or two later, he gives him his proper name, Yahweh. And that word is actually a derivative of the verb to be. I am. Right? God is being itself. And so when Jesus is saying, I am, everybody would hear the the Lord, Yahweh, the God who said, I am who I am to Moses at the burning bush. And then the prophet Isaiah uses this I am language quite a bit as well. And so Jesus is drawing on Isaiah as well. And Isaiah really uses it about the Lord's exclusive right to be king over his people. You're my people, and I'm your God. That's how Isaiah uses this, I am. And so Jesus is connecting his identity with the Father so close that he can even use these words from Exodus and Isaiah concerning the Lord's role over his people for himself. These are big claims. These are serious, them's his fighting words, right? Jesus is trying to identify himself to a misunderstanding world. And guess what? The world continues to misunderstand. And we continue to wrestle with and ask that question, who are you? Well, the core, I think the core issue in this part of John's gospel, the thing that he's really trying to lift up, the, the main problem that he's highlighting is an issue that goes all the way back to the beginning of the story of Israel. the the story of God's rescue plan, that he was going to use this people, Israel, to be his light to the world. As a matter of fact, when he calls Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, he says, I'm going to use you and your family to be a light to the nations. The problem was Israel's light had dimmed. They had, just like this little light of mine, they had kind of hidden it under a bushel basket. It wasn't shining the way that it was supposed to. And now Jesus says his light, he himself is shining into the darkness of the world. Basically, he's saying, I'm doing Israel's job. Well, you know, Israel, they kind of thought they were still on the job and they don't like that too much. Like, hey, wait a minute. Um, There's some clashing that starts happening. Like, that's who we are because they were pretty invested in that. And so within this this problem that John is trying to address about Israel not letting its light shine and Jesus being that light that they were supposed to, we run into the beginning of 
the, this, this chapter, this story of the woman caught in adultery. And this is a, like, really, you know, most of us probably know this story inside and out. Um, this is a great example of how Israel's light was dim. But before we get there, I have to put right up front, just to kind of be honest about it, this story was not in the very earliest versions of John's gospel. So a lot of times when you're reading in your Bible, they'll put it in brackets. And there are a couple places in the New Testament in particular where they do that. The end of Mark's gospel has the same thing. They put it in brackets because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. But the churches over time have felt that this was important enough and it was congruent enough that it belongs where it is. And there's all kinds of different theories as to why that is and how it ended up being that way. And we're not going to go into that because uh, I don't want you to fall asleep that quickly. Um, However, it, it was placed where it is for a reason. And I want to share that with you. Here's what I think the reason is. Okay, right after this story, and you know the story, right? The woman is caught in adultery, and the, the Pharisees bring the woman there, and they say, Jesus, this, man was ca- or this woman was caught in adultery. Ironically, the man's nowhere to be found. And last I checked, it takes two to tango on that. Um, but this woman was caught in adultery, and the law says we should stone her. What should we do, right? And he bends down, and he writes in the sand, By the way, the only thing that Jesus ever wrote, and nobody recorded it. And he writes it in the sand, and they ask him, well, what are we supposed to do? And he stands up and he says, well, whoever's without sin, you be the first to cast a stone. And the reason why I think this story is put there is because right after it, Jesus talks about himself as both the one who is not judge and whose judgment is true, which is really confusing, right? He says, well, I'm not here to judge, but even if I was, my judgment would be true. Well, the way that the church has tried to understand this tension between, well, is he the judge? He said he doesn't come to judge, but then somehow he is, is that Jesus, his purpose wasn't there. His practice wasn't there to judge. But because of who he was, because of the light that he shined, you can't help but see the truth. And that in itself is judgment. I think Martin Luther puts it really well. He puts it this way. He says it's like when a patient goes to a physician and the physician gives them a, a prescription. Here's what I'd like you to do. The, the physician says, I have, I'm not here to poison you. I'm not here to cause you death. I'm here to help you. And if you follow my advice, if you take the medicine that I'm giving you, it will help you. It'll bring life. But if you refuse my advice, then you are choosing death for yourself. I'm not the one who's killing you. So Jesus is kind of like that physician in a way. He's saying, I'm here to bring you life, but you can turn your back on it and you can choose otherwise. And that's judgment unto itself. And so I think the church chose to put this woman caught in adultery story where it did because it illustrates this mystery of Jesus on one hand not bringing judgment and also having judgment of the truth. And we, sh- we see here that Jesus takes the scriptures really seriously. He doesn't condone her behavior. He calls it what it is. He says it's sin. And the scriptures do command death for adultery. Again, In the scriptures, it does say that both the man and the woman are supposed to be stoned. And you wonder where the guy is. And you also wonder, like, do they have to come and, like, make this big show and try to embarrass her and shame her while she's doing it? Right? These are examples of how Israel's light has dimmed. 
But Jesus has this way of putting people before purity. He shows compassion for this shamed woman. Right? He doesn't say that she hasn't sinned, but he forgives the sin. He's not the one who judges, and yet somehow his judgment is true. And when he does this, he averts a really cruel use of the Bible. You know people can use the Bible to be really cruel. Maybe you've had somebody do that to you. Where it's, well, the Bible says, and they were like, it's like you can almost imagine them like throwing it at you as they say that. Without taking into consideration that we're all broken people who stand in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And so I would hope that we would, if we're going to err on one side or the other, would err on the side of forgiveness and grace rather than purity. And I think Jesus gives us a clue as to how to put people before purity. Because when you extend mercy, when you extend grace, when you deserve, extend undeserved forgiveness to somebody and pardon, man, that is probably the most potent and powerful incentive to live a new and different life. Once you've had the experience of being set free from those burdens, right? Sin in the Hebrew, the word sin really, it means like a weight that like crushes you and, and holds you down. And when you've had that weight taken off and you can stand up, man, you don't want to go under that. You don't want to go under that sin, under that burden anymore. Forgiveness arms believers against willful sinning. And because of the way that Jesus handles this situation with this particular woman, the religious leaders, they can't accuse him of not taking the Bible seriously, but he shines a light. When he says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone. You know, the Roman Catholics have this funny story that like, as Jesus says that, this stone goes whizzing by his head and he's like, what the heck? And he turns around and he's like, mom? <laughs> right, that's the whole immaculate conception one. Yes, yeah, so I had to throw that in. But it's also, I think it's really interesting that when he says that, whoever is without sin, you go throw the first stone. The first people to leave are the elders. And the last people to, to leave are the young ones. It makes me wonder if there's something about maturity that we realize the depth of our brokenness. You become more acquainted with the walking contradictions that we really are. And maybe that's one of the gifts of life, the wisdom that comes from. And this story here then rolls right into the next section of teaching where Jesus says, and he's in the temple and he's gathering these people around and he, I can almost see him like yelling out. He goes, I'm the light of the world. Again, another pretty big claim. Right? And so they're, they're at the festival of tabernacles. Okay, this is that festival that celebrates their wandering in the wilderness. And we've talked about this for a couple weeks now because this is all kind of happening in this context. And remember, the Festival of Tabernacles celebrates three main things. God's provision in the wilderness of the manna from heaven. And so we saw Jesus talk about himself as the bread of life. God's provision in the water that comes from the rock. And then Jesus said, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow out of them. And God's provision in his guidance by that pillar, the, the Shekinah of the Lord, the pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that would guide them. And then here Jesus is saying, I'm the light of the world. So you see how he's kind of connecting who he is with these great stories of Israel. 
And this theme of light and dark is all throughout John's gospel. Remember in the beginning, uh, in the prologue, John says his life was the light of the world. And this light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot, will not, does not put it out. This theme of light is also found all throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah shows up big here. This is a Christmas reading. Christmas, by the way, nobody knows when Jesus was born. I hope that doesn't crush anybody today. But nobody really knows when he was born. But the church decided to put it at the darkest time of the year because Jesus is the light that comes into the world. And that's why we read from Isaiah chapter 9. Those who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who've lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Jesus is identifying himself with that light that comes into the darkness. Isaiah 42, I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, the Lord says, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I am the light of the world. And you know, the thing about light is that the light reveals. Light brings things out of darkness and shows them for what they really are. And the whole gospel of John teaches us that not only is the father known in the son, but the father is only known in the son. The true light that truly reveals. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. This is the Christian claim right from the beginning. Calvin puts it this way, Uncle Calvin. Whoever aspires to know God without beginning at Christ is destined to wander through a maze, a labyrinth. And so Jesus uses both this language of I am that connects him with Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he uses this language about being the light that shines in the darkness. He doesn't say I am a light in the world. He says, I am the light of the world. And when he does that, he's making both a really exclusive claim and a really inclusive claim, right? He's saying um, that human beings, they, we yearn for wisdom. How do I live a good life? That is every self-help book ever written. What does it look like to live a good life, to live a real, true, authentic human life? And Jesus' teachings about God and life, they come out pretty good, I think, by comparison with other wisdoms, right? This is his exclusive claim. I am the light of the world. And that means singular, that preempts all other lights, right? So Jesus is at the top and everything else filters down underneath. And yet he also says, I am the light of the whole world, the cosmos, which is a very inclusive claim. Always trying to broaden the boundaries and the horizons to pull it in. I am the light of all of it. Jesus' domain is no less extensive than everything that you can see. And so he goes on to say that when you follow me, you're not going to walk in darkness anymore because you're going to have the light of life within you. And I mean, that's, that's what we want. Right? I want to walk in real life. I want to have it authentic, true, deep life. And you can't drive down Washington Boulevard without being bombarded 
by 35 billboards and advertisements that tell you, here's what living real life looks like. That vacation, that car, the watch that you need, to the clothes, right? Whatever it is. Jesus says that he is the one who brings life and life abundant. And he promises to give this real quality life. And he says it's going to be different. It's not going to look like the world. It's going to be countercultural, morally, spiritually, economically, socially. Following Jesus in the fellowship of the church, rather than following Get Rich Quick or success seminars, is the gospel's promise of real life. So this is my question for us today then. If Jesus is the light of the world, and he is our king, our Lord, our savior, and our job is to reflect his light, we're like the moon, right? The moon doesn't have its own light. It just reflects the light of the sun. Our job is to reflect Jesus' light into the world. How are we doing? Are we illuminating the darkness around us? Or have we become like Israel of Jesus' day that's hiding our light under a bushel? Have we allowed it to be dimmed? My prayer is that our light would shine. Shine out into the darkness of this world that so desperately needs it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you on this day for being our light in the world. Thank you for showing us what it looks like to live a fully integrated, fully human, fully consistent life. Father, we ask that you would help us reflect your light to be your image, to be your ambassadors in this world. Lord, give us courage to walk the counter-cultural way of following you. Give us strength when we falter. Give us spiritual friendships that help to lift us up when we feel weak and unable on our own. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name, knowing that he is our Lord and our King, and he promised to be with us always to the end of the age. Amen. Well, thank you for spending this time with us. And if you ever are in town and you're here on Sunday morning, we'd love to have you visit with us at 880 28th Street at 10 o'clock. We're right here in the sanctuary. And if you are not, but you want to participate a little bit more broadly in the service with the liturgy and the music and the prayers, then you can go to our YouTube channel. W, or If you go to YouTube and just put in First Presbyterian Church Ogden, you'll find us. And in the live tab, you can see all of our live stream services. Uh, And of course, we always appreciate folks who want to support us financially to keep our ministry going. And so you can go to our website, www.fpcogden.org, and you can support the ministry that way. Well, blessings to you on this week, and we'll see you here next, next week with another message.